Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Good evening, and welcome to this uh, study on the book of Isaiah in preparation for the book of Revelation. Um, what I'd like to do tonight is complete our overview of the book of Isaiah. We'll see how well we do. So, the book of Isaiah, the prophet, as we said, is really divided into two major sections. Book 1 through 39 is called the Book of Damnation because it follows a sequence of woes. And in book 40 all the way through 66 is called the Book of Restoration. More specifically, to give you a little bit more detail on that, you can look at it this way. The chapters from 7 through 12 describe the demise of the northern kingdom. Remember, the kingdom of David was divided into two. Hopefully by now this is starting to stick. It should sound familiar. The northern kingdom is the kingdom of Israel with the ten tribes and the southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah with Judah and Benjamin. So the book 7 through 12 is Isaiah's words towards the kingdom of Israel telling them, get ready, pack your stuff, you're going into exile. Game over. Chapter 13 through 40 describes the demise of the southern kingdom. After he's dealt with the northern one, he turns around and talks about the southern one. Now, in history, there's a span of years, right? The northern kingdom was destroyed around 722 or 730 BC. The southern kingdom, with the overtaking of Jerusalem, happened around the year 560 BC. There's quite a bit of a span, but Isaiah's book is effectively prophetic. And it really forces you to take one of two stands. Either you look at it as a prophetic book, or you will take on the stands of saying, well, there's Isaiah 1, and there's Isaiah 2, and there's multiple writers, and you go into slicing and dicing and doing all this critical analysis stuff. Typically, critical analysis can be a really good usable tool, but by and large, when I read the writings of theologians who espouse this approach, I feel as if they just handed me a brick, because it doesn't lift my spirit to God at all. They're slicing and dicing, and I feel that I need to have a doctorate in Greek grammar to attain to salvation, and I think something is fishy. So I tend to espouse the view of the fathers, the book is prophetic. God has given a word to Isaiah to warn his people. And that's what I have been presenting to you with the past two lectures. Now, 
chapters 41 through 55 describe the messianic restoration of the kingdom of David. The kingdom of David. Remember we said that what God's purpose is, is really the restoration of the kingdom of David. Has always been his purpose, still is his purpose. And then... 56 to 66 describe the result of the messianic restoration, the new heavens and the new earth. This theme of the new heavens and the new earth is very important in the book of Revelation. In fact, that outline I gave you is applicable in one way or the other to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation follows the same path, excepting the seven letters which we're going to go through. Beyond the seven letters, when you hit the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven cups, you're really into doom and gloom and destruction and the beast and the wars and Armageddon and all that. Then, after all that has passed, what do we see? We see the heavenly Jerusalem. We see the institution of the Messianic Kingdom and the description of the heavenly Jerusalem. It's exactly the pattern that we see here. Now, in the, in the study we did on Luke, before the book of Revelation, we did about a year and a half worth of study on Luke. I went into details and showed how the structure of the book of the Gospel of St. Luke follows the structure of the book of Isaiah. I don't have time to get into this. But, but definitely, the Lucan account of the work of Christ on earth is very much inspired by Isaiah as a passing remark. Now, the past lectures we spent quite a bit of time dealing with the doom and gloom and the woes and how God is going to deal with His people. And I pointed out to you that if we, right now, hearing those words, feel the heaviness, have difficulty dealing with them, imagine how it must have been for Isaiah himself, going to the Northern Kingdom, telling them, don't even bother fighting you guys, game's over. And then turning around to the southern kingdom saying the same thing. Right? The other important thing to keep in mind is that Isaiah doesn't happen in, in void. He happens in a very specific political context. Much like our own. Very briefly. When Menahem was the king of Israel, Tiglath-Pilitzer III established his presence in Palestine and Samaria... And, and Samaria became a tributary to Assyria. So Tiglath-Pilzer III was the king of Assyria, and he basically was the first attack, as was prophesied by the prophets, against the, the northern kingdom. The threat presented by Tiglath-Pilzer, the Assyrian king, created alliances among the Palestinian nations so they could present a united front against the advancing Assyrians. But Judah, under the, the same threat, did not join the alliance. So the kingdom of Israel up north, Syria, formed an alliance to fight against the Assyrians. Right? What goes around, comes around. Judah down south did not. So the two guys up there looked at Judah and said, Oh, we have a problem in our hands. They should be our, our allies, they're not. So they decided to turn against Judah. Ahaz, king of Judah, thought about the situation and said, mm, I have problems. He decides to form an alliance with the king of Egypt, saying, come to my aid. That's when Isaiah was sent to him and said the famous prophecy, ask of me a sign, I will give it to you. That you, your kingdom shall stand right now. It will not be destroyed. Oh, I'm not going to tempt the Lord my God. What well, a sign shall be given to you, a virgin shall conceive 
and shall bear a son and her, and his name shall be Emmanuel. So notice the link between the political events and the theological events and the liturgical events. They're all connected. Something we typically miss today. We don't see that. We split them apart. The liturgy seems to have nothing to do with politics, and politics seems to have nothing to do with theology or God's plan. But in reality, from God's perspective, that's not true. He will initiate a message, he will send a prophecy dealing with specific events at specific moment in time. Everything is connected. And so, through those events where first Judah is assaulted, but the assault didn't go through, they failed, then Assyria will come against Judah, and they will fail as well. And Judah will stand until the coming of the Babylonians, when the book of the Nazar will come in, and then he will basically take off Jerusalem and destroy it, as was prophesied by Isaiah. This is basically, in political terms, what Isaiah is speaking of, using imagery to represent what the military reality will be all about. This is the same kind of imagery that we will see in the book of Revelation. Alright? Now tonight, what I want to do is move away from the book of Damnation and look at the book of Restoration, where there are some very important um, elements that will play again, we'll see a playback, in the book of Revelation, but also some other asides that are really important for us to highlight and understand. I'm going to start with chapter 40. The reason why I'm starting with chapter 40 is because what I've told you about John the Baptist. When the Pharisees went to John the Baptist and asked him, are you the Messiah? He said, no, I'm not. Well, who are you? And John says, I am the voice of one crying in the desert. Prepare the ways of the Lord. John quoted from the beginning of chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah, which is the book of Restoration. And that was a very important signal he was giving them. He was basically saying, that which was prophesied by Isaiah, by Daniel, by Ezekiel, by all of the prophets, is now to be accomplished. And the interesting thing is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were versed in Scripture who knew scripture very well, got stuck on one simple fact. John the Baptist was not from the temple. John the Baptist lived in Galilee. He had this very funny accent as far as they were concerned. How could this Galilean, who doesn't come from the temple, tell us that the time of restoration will happen now when we who are the guardian of the temple, have not heard the word. Why would God speak to him and not to us? It's sort of interesting because at Lourdes, Our Lady revealed her title of Immaculate Conception to a girl who had trouble reciting the creed. Saint Benedict Subiu. She had trouble reciting the whole creed. Right? You see those patterns, they, they, they're there in scripture for us to understand how God works with us. And the more we are seeped in scripture, the more we see the patterns, the more the patterns become part of our lives, the more our lives become scriptural and the more we can find peace. 
One of the reasons why we can't find peace and we're anxious is because of our lack of the knowledge of God. So, chapter 40. Comfort. Give comfort to my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service is at an end. Her guilt is expiated. Indeed, she has received from the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. That is a key message that I can't repeat enough or emphasize enough. The whole purpose of the doom and gloom is not the doom and gloom. God is intent on doing a new thing, a great thing, a joyful thing. That is His intent in your life and in mine. You know, in the liturgy, during Mass, at one point, the priest says, lift up your hearts. What do we respond? What does that mean? What does we lift them up to the Lord mean? Now, you might have a number of images that may come to you. I'm, I'm, I'm very image-oriented. You might see a little heart with wings trying to kind of float up. Okay, what does that mean to lift up your heart? Now, now think about this for a second. I just want you to think about it. I'm not going to tell you what it means right now. I want you to think about it. And more importantly, think about what we are doing during Mass. Because some of our problems as Catholics is we can put ourselves in autopilot. Right? This is what we call the car wash Catholic. Washes his car on Saturday, goes to Mass on Sunday, watches the game in the afternoon. Done my duty, God, I'm a good man, take care of the rest. Think about that for a second. Every Mass is in the presence of the Most Holy Trinity. Every Mass has all of heaven present. Our Lady's there, St. Joseph is there, St. Peter is there, St. Paul is there, all the saints are there, all the angels are there, your guardian angel is there. They're right there on the altar. All of them are there. They're celebrating Mass with us. Mass is heaven on earth. That's what Mass is. And here we are, going through Mass, and not really realizing what we're doing. Think about that. So take away, this is a takeaway for you. I want you to think and meditate and pray about that. Lift up your heart, we lift them up to the Lord. What do we say after that? We give thanks and praise to God. And what is the answer to this? It is, right? Okay. Take that passage and think it through. Focus on it. Now, if you think there is a correlation between, or a connection between that passage and Isaiah, you'd be right. There is. A voice cries out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wasteland a highway for our God. Every valley shall be filled in, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The rugged land shall be made a plain, the rough country a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all mankind shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. I answer, what shall I cry out? All mankind is grass, and all their glory like the flower of the field. What is the point of this? The point of this imagery is that if you look at, say, the desert, and it's a desert, and the following day you go and you look at the desert, and it has bloomed, 
or you look at a place where you had mountains and valleys and suddenly everything is straight and you have this big highway walking through it you'd notice that something extraordinary is about to happen that's what this is all about something absolutely extraordinary is about to happen what shall I cry out? All mankind is grass and all their glory like the flower of the field. Why is that right there? Because at that point in time, the, the Israelites and the Judeans have been beaten. They are in exile. They've lost the land. They've lost the temple. And they are living under the shadows of the Medo-Persians first, and then uh, under, under the Assyrians, and then under the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians. With all their glory. What shall I cry out? Precisely that. All mankind is grass and all their glory like the flower of the field. Comfort, comfort my people. Where, where is our comfort? Our comfort is in the glory of God. That's where, is, where our comfort lies. When we are faced with tyranny, when we are faced with big, big, you know, plots, when we are faced with People with money and power and lust and greed want to do this and that and the other. That's the message that comes to mind. Alright? That God in time and in history is in control and His will will happen. There's no stopping it. So the closer we are to Him, the closer we unite ourselves with Him, the more we find peace in His glory, not in ours. In His glory. Most of the time, our problem and our anxiety comes from a clash between wanting to glorify ourselves instead of seeking His glory. Wanting to do our will instead of doing His will. As a very simple example, during the spirit of, of Lent, pick one thing you like to do. But pick something very, very small that you like to do. Not big, small. For instance, you may be the kind of person who when they speak, say all the time, you know what I mean. Or like. Or maybe both. Like you know what I mean. Well, during that period of Lent, perhaps you want to take on the resolution that when you speak, you won't say that. Or maybe the kind of person who, without even thinking, perhaps use swear words. Well, during that period of Lent, decide that you're not going to use those words. And then watch the battle of the will. Watch what happens to you. Watch how you become irate and easily irritated and upset. And observe all that happening to you to realize how much our will is important to us. If you're beyond those things, then my suggestion to you would be to go the next step. Put your alarm at 3 in the morning. Wake up at 3 in the morning. And for 15 minutes, sit down, not in your bed, get out of bed, go find another place, sit down, and say the rosary. It's 15 minutes. It's not going to do anything to your health. I don't buy that argument. Say the rosary. And then watch what happens to you. The day you can get yourself to do these things and do them immediately, as scripture says, immediately they followed him. Immediately. 
that day is when you can say to yourself, I just done my duty, nothing else. The point is again to keep our focus on God's glory. As long as we do that, we're going to be in good shape. Again, verse 24 in that chapter, he sits enthroned above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a veil, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Notice that that imagery, he stretches out the heavens like a veil, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. So when in the book of Revelation we'll see imagery where we see the sky being rolled back, that means that God is deconstructing what he had constructed. It's the end of something. It's the end of an age. Not necessarily the end of time. But the end of a covenantal age. Alright? That imagery, again, in the book of Revelation, is based on this type of symbolism that we find among the prophets. The reason why we say that the, its inhabitants are like grasshoppers is, again, to indicate that at the end of the day, what really counts is Him and Him only. And remember in the Gospel what Jesus said, Do not fear the one who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy the soul. Who is the one who can destroy the soul? Satan. Satan? Really? Satan can destroy our soul? No. He can't. Satan cannot destroy our soul. He doesn't have that power. Satan is a creature. He can whisper in our ears. But who can destroy our soul? The one who made it can destroy it. No one else. Who's that? God. That's what Christ had in mind. The one who destroys the body is Satan because of original sin. We are all under we were all under his dominion. We were all to die because of original sin. But the one who can destroy the soul, which is called the second death or the final death or the real death, is God. And more specifically, Christ Himself who can who will judge us, who will judge every single human being. And fear doesn't necessarily mean a servile fear, but a filial fear. A fear not to offend one's father. The beginning of, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Chapter 41. But you, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, offspring of Abraham, my friend, now notice, Israel my servant, Israel Jacob, my servant whom I have chosen, offspring of Abraham my friend. You see the difference in language? Notice the difference. Israel is a servant at this point. Abraham is a friend. Right? Are, there, are they at that stage part of the family this is not family language being brought here we're not talking about sons and daughters we're talking about a servant we're talking about a friend alright you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and summoned from its far off places you whom I have called my servant whom I have chosen and will not cast off 
fear not, I am with you, be not dismayed, I am your God, I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you with my right hand of justice. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth. This is a very startling prophecy on Isaiah's part, or uh, not a prophecy, but an oracle of the Lord. Why? Because when the Assyrians went down and took over the ten tribes, what the Assyrians did was that they forced them to intermarry with other people. Hence the lineage was lost. The lineage was lost. So then how could God bring his people back when you can't even recognize them? That was the key question that was on, 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 on Israel's mind, on true Israelites who were trying to understand God's prophecy. How will God restore the kingdom of David when we can't even tell who's part of the kingdom? How can God do such a thing? Verse 14. Fear not, O warm a worm, <laughs> worm Jacob, O maggot Israel. I will help you, says the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. St. Louis de Montfort, in his book, True Devotion to Mary, says that if you count yourself as a worm, 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 <laughs> worm then be blessed. If you count yourself as, if you can't see yourself as a worm, you're blessed. Strange, isn't it? What I want to focus on, I'm, I'm going to let you think about this. I'm going to stew, let you stew on this as well. We'll talk about it next week again. So I'll you two things next week. But I want you to think about this one. First of all, do you think yourself as a worm? Would you compare yourself as a worm? Would you think of yourself this way? And why would one be blessed? What does that mean? What I want to focus on right now is the fact that God looks upon Israel and sees Israel as a maggot, as a worm. And yet, He will not abandon them. Let me put, them, put this in terms you could understand a little bit better. Say you had a son. And say your son contracted leprosy. And say the leprosy got to such an advanced stage that his face is so deformed that there's no face anymore. That would test the maternal and paternal love. That would test anybody's love. In fact, St. Francis of Assisi was confronted with such a person. And Francis, the rich man, would have passed away, maybe would have run away, would have turned away. Francis, the poor monk, embraced the person with leprosy. This shows you the depth of God's love. Even though Israel in, 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 is in such a state that it's actually compared to a worm and to a maggot, God will not abandon Israel. So it is, like for, it is the same for ourselves. No matter how big our sins are, God will forgive us provided we ask for forgiveness. Provided we ask for forgiveness. And the problem, typically, that we have in the back of my mind is that, sure, if I do something really bad, I'll ask God for forgiveness. But you know what? Asking for forgiveness is like making, doing push-ups. would be like people sitting on a, sitting on a, you know, being couch potatoes, and saying, sure, if I need to, I'll do 50 push-ups. But we don't do any every day. You think we have a real good chance of doing 50 push-ups? Zero. 
Zero. So if we don't get in the habit of asking God for forgiveness, guess what? We're going to find it very difficult when we really have to ask Him for forgiveness. So my recommendation to you, or a suggestion, however many times you're going to confession today, double it. Up to a point. If you're going every week, I think you're fine. It's not a joking matter, by the way. I wish everybody would be going every week. The Pope, John Paul II, went every day. Because it's a wonderful source of grace. But if you're going once a year, make it twice a year. If you're going once every six months, make it once every three months. Get in the habit of asking God for forgiveness. It will serve you well. Chapter 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one with whom I am pleased, upon whom I have put my spirit. He shall bring forth justice to the nations. Okay. These are the same word that... God the Father will use in speaking of His Son. Here is, but not my servant, right? Here is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's why we speak of Jesus as the servant. He became a servant because of this prophecy. Alright? Not crying out, not shouting, not making His voice heard in the street. A bruised reed He shall not break, and a smoldering wick He shall not quench. Until he establishes justice on the earth, the coastlands will wait for his teaching. Why the coastlands? Because the coastlands, for the most part, are not made of Israel. They're the Gentiles. And that's why the coastlands will wait for his teaching, meaning his teaching will go forth beyond Israel proper. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spreads out the, the, the earth with its crops, who gives breath to its people and spirit to those who walk on it. Again, this imagery of stretching out that is very, very common in the book of Isaiah. Now, 43, you notice this, we've seen languages where God speaks of Israel as a servant. There's a progression now where we move from servantship to something else. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by, your, by, I have called you by name, you are mine. Now that is marital language. That is marital language. We're moving away from relationship of master-servant to husband and bride. You are mine. Because you are precious in my eyes and glorious, and because I love you, I give men in return for you and peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. From the east I will bring back your descendants. From the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, hold not back. Bring back my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is named as mine, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, lead out the peoples who are blind, though they have eyes, who are deaf, though they have ears. So, the, the, the image, imagery of north, south, east, and west indicates universality. The whole earth, it also indicates, as we saw in the symbolism, the number four is completeness, but also the symbol of the Gentiles. All the Gentile nation are going to give up, give back all those who God are made His, His own, for His own glory. And He will take Israel, and Israel will be, because you are precious in my eyes and glorious, and because I love you, you are, are not to fear, and I will bring everybody back. 
Verse 12, it is I who foretold, I who saved, I made it known, not any, str any strange God among you. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, I am God. Yes, from eternity I am He, there is none who can deliver from my hand, who can countermand what I do. You notice that the, the book of, of restoration is all centered on God's glory, the recognition of His glory, and making Him the center of our lives. So today, in the world we live in, we have a very um, compartmentalized, we've, com we've boxed, we we've created a bunch of little boxes in our heads. So there's the religion box. This serves us when we go to church, when we you know, go to Mass, and that sort of stuff. Then there is the political box, which is separate. That's when we look around us and see what propositions are coming down and who is in power and who should we vote for and what's going on in the world. Then there's the economy box, yet separate. And for some of us there's the sports box. You, you, do, you, you realize that that kind of breakdown is not, is not in harmony with a Catholic view of the world? We don't view the world this way. The Catholic view of the world works like this. First, Mass. Mass is the source from which waters, meaning grace, flows. That comes from the altar. Then, as it leaves the sanctuary, it is going to be received by those who are in the pews. So, the graces from the altar are always there, always present, but they need to be conveyed to us through the priest. And to the extent that the priest is holy, to that extent, those graces will flow. Then they're received by us. And to the extent that we are holy, the world will be blessed. You understand how it works? That is the Catholic view. That actually is the divine view. That's how it works. That's the purpose of the church. The church is the source of graces for the world. So, when you look out and you see the problems in the world, and you see it not going really well, the logical conclusion is, oh, something is wrong with the church. It's cause and effect. You fix the church, the world fixes itself. You try to fix the world hoping that somehow things will in a place, we go nowhere. We go nowhere. And today, it isn't even a matter of trying to fix the church, it's trying to get Catholics to view what I just told you. They don't view it this way. There's no sense of hierarchy of grace. Mass is not the center of the day, it's not the center of their life, it's not the center of their heart, it's not the center of their world. It's just one more thing they do. You understand? Mass is the center of our life. And as long as we don't grasp that, we have work to do. Verse 19 of chapter 43. See, I am doing something new. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? In the desert I make a way, in the wasteland rivers. The people whom I formed to myself, verse 21, that they, may, that they might announce my praise. 
the people whom I formed for myself, that they might announce my praise. What is the purpose of the people he formed for himself? To announce his praise. To announce his praise, not to keep it for themselves. We're not Catholics inside the church and then outside we're just like everybody else. It doesn't work this way. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we just take the Bible, walk around in the office, and then, you know, preach to everybody. St. Francis used to say, preach all the time, and when necessary, use words. So it's our actions, it's the holiness that comes from our very being that is going to do most of the preaching. When we take our faith really seriously, when it becomes the center of our lives, it starts to propagate on its own. That's what we're all, all called to do, all of us. This is the new thing God is doing. The people whom I formed for myself, they might announce my praise. That's the new thing. Guess what? The people whom I formed myself, you're it. Every one of you. He had you on, in, in mind. He was thinking about you. When he said those words to Isaiah. That's what gets really hard, see? Because our senses get in the way. Right? Because we look around, what do we see? We see a bunch of people who smell like everybody else. They, they speak like everybody else. They're no different than anybody else out there. So what's this business of your it? And that's why you keep in mind, in the creed, what do we say about the church? Yeah, before we say one holy Catholic, there's something else we say right before that. We what? Believe. The church is not a pure human institution that we can kind of, you know, figure out as a CEO and a CTO and a CFO and a CIO. And the church cannot be fully understood with reason. The church transcends reason. We need the gift of faith to see the church for what the church really is. The bride of Christ. We believe. We believe in the Catholic Church. By the way, this is a hint for the business of lifting up your heart. Yes. Mm, no. Is, 40, is 43 a call to the Israel of today? No. 43, I mean, it could be indirectly, it's a call to all people, but very specifically to the Israel of today, meaning the Catholic Church. We are the Israel of God. Right? I've not made this. Read the first letter of St. Peter. He's emphatic about it. This is part of our liturgy. We are the Israel of God. 44, verse 2. Thus says the Lord who made you, your help who formed you from the womb. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, the darling whom I have chosen. Notice again that husband-wife imagery that God uses. It's an imagery used to indicate the kind of relationship He wants with us. So let me open the slight parenthesis here. By the way, for those of new to this, I do tend to wander. And so that's, here we go. This is the first time I'm actually aware of it before it happens. So I'm making some progress after seven years. Alright. When God uses marital imagery, sometimes we can feel a little bit queasy. What do you mean, marital imagery? Well, let's reflect about, on marriage for a very, for a very, very you know, short time. What does, what does St. Paul say about marriage? He says that marriage is an image of the relationship between Christ and his church. Not that Christ and his church is an image of marriage. It's the other way around. Image is patterned according to the relationship between Christ and his church. Okay? 
Why? Because the purpose of, of marriage is to take a man and a woman and to turn them into saints. That's the purpose of marriage. That's what marriage is all about. Marriage is a saint-making machine. Alright? And children are given to us by God as a way of um, smooth, smoothing those rough edges we have. Alright? So in the family, the family, if we really, really take the family seriously, and we understand what the family is all about, we don't run away from it, its purpose is to make us a saint. Now, when a man and a woman unite, that union of body and soul, with which God has, to which God has associated a very specific pleasure in the marital act, is a symbol a representation, an idea, a foretaste of the union between Christ and the soul. You understand? It's a small little candy compared to the union between Christ and the soul. That is why you hear that marital language because at the end of the day what Christ wants with each one, every one of us is to unite us to Him. He wants to flood us with His life, with the life of the Holy Spirit. And since the Holy Spirit is all good because He is God, when goodness comes in our heart and our soul and floods us and overpowers us and overtakes us and fills us to up to here, what do you think we call that? Ecstasy. That's the real thing, by the way. Now, priests and nuns do the smart thing. What well, they don't do it, God choose them. Why? Because they forego the candy and go directly for the real thing. They are sacrificing a real good, which is marriage, for the greater good, union with God. So to all of you here who are not married, I do diligently ask you to take your vocation very seriously. Whether if you're called to marriage, then get on your knees, pray for your spouse. She must be out there somewhere, unless you're seven years old. She may not be born yet. But if you're seven years old, you're probably not concerned with these things anyhow. The last thing you have on your mind is marriage, which is a good thing. Or, if God wants you as His own, understand the grace. If you are parents and you have children, and your child makes mention of wanting to become a priest or a nun, don't get up, yell and scream and run away. You ought to encourage your child. Because there is no greater grace for a man or a woman than to be united with God directly. Remember, it is a special calling from God. None of us merit to be a priest or a nun. We don't merit that. We can't apply. No one man deserves to be a priest. It's a calling from God. Now, as far as marriage is concerned, its purpose, as I said, is to turn us into saints and to help us participate in the work of creation of God. And to that effect, I'd like to remind 
the women who are present here, that in God's eyes, you represent the church. And Christ died for the church. He didn't die for a CIO of a company. He didn't die for us to have PhDs. He died for the church. That means there is no greater vocation for a married woman than to be a mother and a wife. There isn't. You may be very smart. By the way, I have six girls and a boy. Alright? So be very careful if somebody's going to tell me that girls can't do certain things. Alright? You, you can do anything you want. Yeah, you can be president. Girls can do anything guys can do. Maybe not wrestling, but maybe wrestling. I don't know. But be it as it may. They can do everything. There's no doubt about that. The catechism, by the way, is emphatic about this. The relationship between a husband and a wife are not to be carried in, in, in the business world. In the business world, a boss can be a woman or a man. That's not the, the marital relationship of the husband as the head of the family. The husband is the head of the family, not necessarily of the corporation. It's in the catechism, by the way. You can do all that stuff, but remember, nothing will make you a saint like being a woman and being a mom. Nothing. Because that's how God, that's the vocation He gave you. He gave you and only you the ability to participate with Him in carrying forward an eternal, immortal soul who one day will shine like the sun. After all the PhDs are gone, and after all this universe is finished, and all the black holes are done, and all the stars are completely turned into dust, and nothing remains of everything we've done here, what you've carried in your womb may be in heaven praising God. You think there's something greater than that? Think again. Don't let your career rob you from holiness. Now, if God doesn't give you children, you ought to be a spiritual mother, and you will do it in many different ways. But think about that. Verse 28 is really interesting. In chapter 44, I say to, of Cyrus, Cyrus was the king of Persia. Right? So Isaiah is writing about a hundred years, at least a hundred years before Cyrus shows up on the scene. And, and he says, I say of Cyrus... My shepherd, who fulfills my every wish, he shall say of Jerusalem, let her be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. That is an amazing statement on Isaiah's part, because he's saying that the anointed of the Lord is the king of Persia, Cyrus. And in fact, when the Jews showed Cyrus scripture, and he read it, he was so awed by it, that he gave order to rebuild the temple. And that was the second temple that was rebuilt at the order of Cyrus. And in the beginning of chapter 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I grasp, subduing nations before him and making kings run in his service, opening doors before him and leaving the gates unbarred, I will go before you and level the mountains, bronze doors I will shatter and iron bars I will snap. Political power is given to nations by God. And as long as they are faithful to the covenant, that power remains with them. And when they're not faithful to the covenant, it's taken away from them. That's how it works. It doesn't work any other way. God uses nations to do His will. We need to be attuned to that and read into politics 
and see into politics of today the finger of God, the scepter of Jesus Christ acting throughout the world. And then peace will be restored to our hearts because Christ is always, always in control. You anoint one as a king. Right? So God is anointing him. He's giving him the spirit. He gave him the spirit just as he anointed David. He made him essentially a ruler that would do his bidding. Verse 23 and 45. By myself I swear. Remember when we went through the oath taking, the covenant? When God says I swear by myself, he's basically putting himself under a curse when he says that. This is how the covenant works. Uttering my just decree and my unalter unalterable word, to me every knee shall bend, by me every tongue shall swear, saying only in the Lord are just deeds and power. Before him in shame shall come all who vent their anger against him. In the Lord shall be the vindication and the glory of all the descendants of Israel. God's dominion is universal. And that's how we as Catholics must see the world. The world belongs to Christ. And it is our duty to get that message out. And the only way we can get it out effectively is through holiness. That's the only way. In, verse 50, in, in Isaiah chapter 51, Listen to me who pursue justice, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the pit from which you were carried. Queried, I'm sorry. Again, the notion that God is the rock and the implication it has on him, on Christ telling Peter, you are rock, and what it means. You can see it's completely seeped in, in, um, in Isaiah and other places in the scripture as well. Verse 11, those whom the Lord has ransomed will return and enter Zion singing, crowned with everlasting joy, that will meet with joy and gladness, sorrow and mourning will flee. I, it is, I who comfort you, can you then fear mortal man who is a human only to be looked upon as grass? That's a very nice verse as a point of nightly meditation. I, it is, I who comfort you, can you then fear mortal man who is human only to be looked upon as grass? This is where we get this notion that all those who are in heaven are crowned. They have a crown of glory given to them by God representing their merits. So I, I hope you're getting a glimpse of what those messages are. A constant reminder that God loves us, that God is a father, that God is, God is a husband, that he has taken Israel to be his wife. He's got only one wife. He doesn't have 53 or 33,000, only one. And no matter what, he loves his wife and there is no divorce. And then he wants to do the same thing with our soul. That's what he wants. In 54, there is a very important promise. Verse 9, this is for me like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah should never again, again deluge the earth. So I have sworn not to be angry with you or to rebuke you. Speaking of Israel. My love shall never leave you, nor my covenant of peace be shaken, says the Lord, who have mercy on you. And that is echoed in the word that Christ gave Peter. And that is why we say that the church will stay and the church will stand till the end of times. Because God has sworn that he will make it happen. There was a man who came running to a cardinal in Rome and told him that Napoleon was set to destroy the church. And the cardinal looked at him and said, well, that's impossible. We tried and we failed. If the church was made of human hand, it would have fallen a long time ago. Contemplate the church. Contemplate the church. Learn. 
You must have an abiding love for the church if you are to have an abiding love for Christ. No one can say that he has God as his father if he doesn't say that he has the church as his mother. St. Augustine. Your measure of the love of Christ is, is your love of Christ is measured by your love of the church. Verse chapter 56. Very interesting, very powerful. Again, a prophecy of Isaiah that could not make sense at the time that he was living in, nor could it make sense for the Jews at the time of Christ. It could only make sense at the time of the church. Listen, verse 3. Let not the foreigner say, when he will join himself to the Lord, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Nor let, nor let the eunuch say, see I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who observe my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and in my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters, better than sons and daughters. An eternal, imperishable name I will give him. What does that mean? It means that the one who is considered unclean, a eunuch, is now joined to Israel. That is against the, 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 the law of Moses. You understand? You understand the power of this word? It is against the law that Moses gave the Israelites. In fact, I need to check on whether a eunuch is unclean or not. But essentially, yes, okay, now I get it. A eunuch cannot be a priest. A eunuch cannot offer sacrifice. In order to offer sacrifice, you must be a Levite. You must be without blemish. You must prove that you're a Levite for the past seventh generation. All right? And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, ministering to Him, loving the name of the Lord, and becoming His servants, all who keep the Sabbath free from profanation, and hold to My covenant. Verse 7, Their holocausts and sacrifices will be acceptable on My altar, for My house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Verse 6, Ministering to Him and offering sacrifices. A Gentile, an unclean, a goyim, offering sacrifice in the temple? That's absurd for anyone under the law of Moses, for anyone under the, the Aaron priesthood. It only makes sense today. It only makes sense since Christ established the church. And the last thing I want to comment on tonight is a very interesting passage in, in chapter 62. Verse 4. He's speaking of Jerusalem, Zion. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. You see the marital imagery again that shows up? For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. For as a young man marries a virgin, so so shall your sons marry you. How many of you in your Bibles have, on verse 5, sons? How many have builder? Yeah. See, the translation that says builder is because the, the translator, the real word is son. You can't just... But what do you mean your sons marry you? So they get an electroshock and they opt for something else. But this translation, this is why I like it for a Bible study, the Ignatius Bible is fairly strict. In terms of, it, it, it sticks very close to the, to the original meaning, although it's dry when you read it. But it's very, very much um, close to the, to, the initial, to the initial meaning. So, so, so shall your sons marry you. Well, what does that mean? Again, a really good example that anyone who had a mind that all you need is the Bible, is somebody who's going to read the Bible carefully. 
Here you are reading the Bible all by yourself. You hit this passage. What do you do with it? Change it to builder, right? Change it to builder or go blip and keep on reading, right? What does that mean? Alright, here's what the fathers did with this. You see, we always say that the Old Testament, that the New Testament is hidden in the Old, and the Old is explained in the New. We need the New, we need the cross, we need Christ to understand the Old. Right? Turn to the Gospel of St. John. You see, this is something we've, we've done in previous Bible studies. I'll spend five minutes on it because it's really worth doing it. Because if nothing else, it will open a window for you on the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. Ver- chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 29, he says the next day. <coughs> right? So how many days so far? Two. Right? Verse 35, the next day. That's three. Right? Verse 43, the next day. That's four. Chapter 2. On the third day. On the third day from what? From the fourth day. We get to what? Seventh day. What do we have on the seventh day? A marriage. How interesting. John starts with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Very, very mystic, very high-flying stuff, all the way up there, and then suddenly, boom, he zooms down from, you know, 10,000 feet high, all the way down to the last of marriage, and some business of wine that is missing. <clears throat> well, he's got something in mind. Now, and his, the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also Jesus also was invited to the marriage. By the way, you notice, John, if you read scripture like you read newspaper, you will miss everything. So slow down. Slow down. Pay attention to stuff. What John did right now would raise an eyebrow in the eye of any good God-fearing Jew. Why? Because if Jesus is the Messiah, if John believes that Jesus is the Messiah, how could he... How could he put him second? How can he put him second? How can he say first, the mother of Jesus was there, oh, and Jesus was there too. See, see, if you slow down and start reading, then God will open his graces to you and will really draw you, know, draw you into scripture. When the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That sentence, what have you to do with me, is a Hebraism. It's a way in Hebrew to say, Lady, whatever you want, I will do. And we know that from other occasions where, for instance, demons say to Jesus, O Jesus of Nazareth, we know who you are. You are the, the, the chosen one. You're the Son of God. What have you to do with us? Meaning, whatever you ask me, I will do, even though it's not exactly my will. That's what it means. That's what Jesus is telling her. Okay? Oh, woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then she says, His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And then we have the business of the six stones, jars, etc., etc. The interesting thing is that in this marriage, the two people getting married are not named. Right? There's no names given. The only two individuals who are really brought out in limelight is who? Jesus and the mother of Jesus. Right? John insists on calling her the mother of Jesus for a multitude of reasons. 
want to ensure that God was incarnate, that God has become man, because he has a mother, and two, to emphasize her role. Mother. Right? And now what happens there? He tells her, my hour has not yet come. And then she says, do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus goes ahead, even though his hour has not yet come, and does his first miracle at her bidding. She asks him, it's not his hour, but he does it. Right? Why? To find that why, we need to go back to Luke. If you recall in Luke, Jesus went to the temple, stayed there, they came back and found him there. And Luke tells us after that event, that he came down and was obedient to them. In that particular case, the obedience that they're speaking about is spiritual. Meaning that God has accepted to let himself, God, be led by Mary and Joseph. So that they would tell him when to start. And that's what she's doing. She's telling him, you need to start now. What is emphasized here? What is really emphasized is the unity. The very deep and profound and mystical unity between Christ and his mother. What we call the sacred heart and the immaculate heart. Right? Beating along the same beat. That is the perfect that's exhibit A for the union of a soul with Christ. Mary is so intimately, so completely united with her son by the power of the Holy Spirit that has, taken, that has completely filled her, that she's completely united to him, that the marriage of which John is speaking physically is a symbol of the real marriage between what? The mother and the son. You understand? So when he says, your sons shall marry you, what Isaiah meant, which could only be explained in John, is that we have to have a deep abiding love to the church. To where the church is, to where we are united to the church, the same way that Jesus was united to Mary. And in that particular context, we ought to be also united to Mary. So the marriage of which they're speaking is not primarily the physical act, because that makes no sense for, for sons to marry a town, a city, Jerusalem. Makes no sense. So obviously we know that that's not what he meant. But what he meant is the spiritual hidden meaning of the unity of the soul with Christ through his church and his mother. That's what we have to do. We have to conform our will to the will of Christ. And the best way to do it is to do it through Mary, by Mary, with Mary. Through the church, by the church, with the church. That is our duty and that's how we show that we love God. I hope that tonight the yeah, it kind of is a little bit frustrating, you know, to spend only three lectures on Isaiah, to be really honest with you, right? But, but it's, it's really hard to pick the passages because everything is so beautiful. But I hope that you got a glimpse of God's plan as, as given us in Isaiah. Yes, God will punish. Yes, God will punish terribly if he has to because he cares about our souls. He cares about our eternity. 
do you understand, do you, none of us can really understand eternity. Do you understand what eternity means? What does forever and ever 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 mean? What does that mean? A billion, billion, trillion, billion year is not even a second in eternity. What does eternity mean? We don't even, we can even think about it. But let me put it in a perspective that we may be able to appreciate better. You know St. Peter, St. Peter died upside down, right? That was not fun. At all. Right? As I always say the California way, right? That was not cool. Right? But anything, it wasn't cool. So let's assume that Peter suffered most of his life, which is not true, but let's assume that's the case. Let's assume he lived till he was 99 years old, I don't think so, but let's assume he did. So 99 years, let's say 70 of them were all painful. 70 years, Peter died. How old is Peter? How old is St. Peter? He's at least 2,006 years old. Do you realize that? Well, yeah. He's alive, isn't he? St. Peter is alive. He's 2,006 years old. And for 2,100 and some 50 years, it's been eternal bliss. Do you think he remembers when he hurt himself by falling on the, on the ground when he was seven years old? Did you, you, that's what I'm talking about. That's eternity. If, all we, if, all our, if we are only worried about the, the, the things of this earth, we can't understand that stuff. But if we look up to heaven and understand that this is boot camp, we're all like a bunch of kids living in a boot camp. And some of us are living on bigger hills with some aluminum foils houses and we're fighting over the aluminum. It's boot camp. All of it. Compared to heaven, this is nothing. So this is the right period. This is, this is the period of Lent, which is a period where we give something away that we really hold dear and near in order to, to grow closer in our love with God. And I really encourage you not to let that period of Lent go by. Not to let the graces of Lent go by. But do offer up something. Don't just offer it up and stop. Offer it up and say to God, okay, I'm giving this little thing so you can give me your love. That's the deal. And remember, in all your ways, wherever you go, God gave you God an angel. If you've never had any devotion to God an angel, start right now. And one of the better places to start is when you're driving and you're going somewhere, ask your God an angel to find you a parking space. Try it. Try it and then you will see how your garden angel works. Devotion to your garden angel is very important. And keep in mind that every night God watches over you. God loves you. God cares about you and all your loved ones. So that we always must abide in his peace no matter what. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, 
please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.